Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Usually you say thanks for listening. Oh, I do. Okay, okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for listening. <laughs> I forgot. Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for Cal Matters. And I am Lingam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. Today, we're talking about the wonkiest, timely housing topic with a fun name in California housing. But there are so many, Manuela. <laughs> Maybe, but this is a good one. It is nothing other than the builder's remedy. Oh, yes, that is a fun name. And it's relevant right now, like all of our topics. To give a quick <laughs> definition, the Builder's Remedy is a previously little-known provision in California law that allows developers to basically build whatever they want in cities that don't have state-compliant housing plans, provided they set aside some units for low- or middle-income households. Okay. And since the deadline for Bay Area cities to get their housing plans approved by the state was January 31st, there is now a host of new cities where builders are theoretically eligible to be remedied. Mm. And that is in addition to many cities in Southern California where the builder's remedy has been active for a while. Looking forward to digging deeply into the builder's remedy later on. And to help us to do it, we have, as always, the perfect guest. Who is it, Manuela? We'll be digging into this with Chris Elmendorf, a law professor at UC Davis, who has written extensively about the Builder's Remedy. But first, it is the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is... The Avocado of the Fortnight. That's right. Our fortnightly look at the most wacky, wild, madcap story in California housing in recent weeks. Liam, where are we going for this episode? Well, we're back in the most fertile avocado grove in all of California. I'm, of course, talking about the extremely wealthy Silicon Valley enclave of Atherton. It couldn't be anywhere else. Mm. Usually, I ask what's going on in a place to merit an avocado. But what isn't going on in Atherton, Liam? What is not? <laughs> yes. So we have some familiar outlines for this avocado, but of course, with a little Atherton twist. Okay, go on. So as we mentioned at the top, Bay Area cities had to submit new housing plans to the state on January 31st, and in the days and weeks prior, there was a bit of a scramble to do so. As many listeners know, every eight years, the state requires all cities in California to produce a zoning plan to accommodate enough new housing to meet projected population growth and other factors. During this cycle, however, the numbers are a lot higher than in the past. And then Atherton... Population 7,000, average home price of 7.9 million, <laughs> and traditionally staunchly single-family home, or perhaps you might say single-family mansion town, has been talking about rezoning some property for multifamily housing. One acre-and-a-half parcel at issue, called 23 Oakwood, has a single-family home there now, but a developer wants to build up to 16 townhomes instead. The city has been considering changing the zoning for it to meet the state housing requirements. And I imagine 23 Oakwood has neighbors who, of course, have thoughts. One famous neighbor in particular, that would be Golden State Warriors basketball superstar, Steph Curry. You know my rule, Liam. What's that? I told you this at the beginning. Yes. Of, <laughs> before we started this podcast, I told you we would not be discussing basketball. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I will make an exception for today because this is an excellent avocado. So tell me, what did Steph do? Steph decided to assist. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, assist <laughs> Atherton in the development of its housing plan. Steph and his wife, Aisha, sent a letter to the town on January 18th that said in part, quote, We hesitate to add to the not in our backyard, literally, rhetoric, but we wanted to send a note before today's meeting. Safety and privacy for us and our kids continues to be our top priority and one of the biggest reasons we chose Atherton as home. At least he knows he's adding to the rhetoric. And it's our, not my. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right. So the Currys go on in their missive to ask Atherton to leave the 23 Oakwood property off its zoning plan. And if the city decides to allow multifamily housing there anyway, to require taller fencing and landscaping to prevent sight lines onto their property. Quite a few asks in there. So Manuela, you might say that Steph Curry is asking Atherton to play some zone defense. (laughs) To defend his golden egg. (laughs) What a golden egg warrior. (laughs) Close enough. Close enough. Okay. okay. Um, but, but anyway, at Atherton's very lengthy meeting on January 31st to approve its housing plan, the city council decided to not rezone the 23 Oakwood property, but rather put an overlay on it so that it could be developed as multifamily. Okay. What's the difference there? Yeah, it's a great question. Did Steph get uh, what he wanted? Well, right. I mean, so the way it was described in, in coverage of this meeting was that an overlay, I guess, would be less prescriptive and done in such a way where the townspeople hope that that would make it more likely to stay a single family home, but we'll see, I suppose. Okay, intriguing. And there's more. So at the meeting, residents and council members expressed deep concern over the 23 Oakwood property, no matter what they decided to do. That's because the developer of 23 Oakwood has threatened to use the builder's remedy on the site. That sounds harrowing, Liam, and Mm. luckily we're going to get to define those terms shortly. But before we do, we have a special shout out to make here. Yes. The only reason we know about Steph Curry's letter is the sleuthing of Silicon Valley superstar reporter Angela Sports of the Almanac local paper, who has uncovered many of our favorite avocados over the past couple of years, including 2022's Avocado of the Year, who could forget the mountain lions in Woodside. So thank you once again, Angela, for your stellar reporting. And a guest on this very show. So Mm. yes, thank you, Angela. Avocado Nation salutes you. (laughs) (laughs) But this is a very good segue. We explained a little bit about the Builder's Remedy right off the top, but let's get into it now. Did you know that I'm a bit of an amateur psychologist? I know you consider yourself many things, Leah. <laughs> yes. Well, one of them is amateur psychologist. And I'm going to start a little bit today with this sort of oddball theory I have about this sort of stuff in general. Okay, go on. So I think one reason people seem to care about the builder's remedy is because it has such a distinctive name. My colleague, LA Times colleague, Sam Dean on Twitter said recently that the builder's remedy sounds like a dark historical fantasy novel. I mean, it does sound like a potion, like a <laughs> remedy and I think a potion. <laughs> right. So the name, I, I think, does give it this special aura. I feel the same way about like debt ceiling. I think mm-hmm. if the debt ceiling were called like fiscal service reauthorization or something like that, there'd be no problem with it being rolled in and passed with any other thing Congress does regularly. It's just because it's called debt ceiling that's gotten this all this attention around it. 
That's an interesting theory. I think you have enough to start a podcast on just this. (laughs) Maybe I will. Maybe I will. But anyway, why don't I actually get to the builder's remedy here? So what it says is that developers can propose high-rises, towers, various tri, four, or even other plexes, whatever they want to build in cities that have run afoul of state housing planning laws. Provided the developer dedicates at least 20% of the units for low-income housing or all of them for moderate-income housing. And if that happens, you know, city councils are powerless to say no. The provision has been around, however, since 1990, but really hasn't ever been used before. Why not? Well, there's a lot of legal uncertainty, and we'll get into this with Chris later on, but the law isn't really written super tightly, and there's some potential squabbling and where it could actually apply, like how out of compliance with state law, as it were, a city would have to be before it were to take effect. I see. And also these projects, especially any larger ones, are subject to the California Environmental Quality Act, meaning that there could be a years-long environmental review process with the door left open to litigation there too. Potential projects in beach areas also would be subject to the Coastal Act and its development restrictions there too. Okay, so not exactly a builder's slam dunk. Ah, look at you. (laughs) I got to keep up with you. Okay, so given all this uncertainty, why are we just hearing about it now? Because while there is some uncertainty, there is less than there was before. In recent years, as we've discussed many times, Governor Gavin Newsom and the state legislature have passed a bunch of laws strengthening other housing laws. And one consequence is that the builder's remedy is more viable. Have we seen any examples of these projects actually being proposed? Yeah, indeed we have. So I spoke last week with a lawyer that's been involved in Southern California Builders Remedy projects, and he said there's probably 10 cities where they've been proposed, Santa Monica, Beverly Hills, Redondo Beach, West Hollywood, La Habra among them. Remember, Southern California is the first for this to matter because their deadline to comply with state housing law for this eight-year cycle passed already, and that was last year. So in Redondo Beach, there's a developer who wants to build more than 2,200 units on the site of a defunct power plant. In Santa Monica, developers have proposed more than 4,500 apartments across 16 sites, including 2,000 apartments alone in one 15-story high-rise. So you mentioned Governor Gavin Newsom and the legislature. Have they said anything about it? You know, this sort of all came to the forefront basically last fall during the period where people were preparing for elections and legislation season was over. To my knowledge, there's not been a lot of legislation proposed this year so far that addresses this. But I did speak with uh, State Senator Nancy Skinner, who wrote one of the laws that ended up strengthening the builder's remedy in years past. And what she told me, this is for a story I did on what was happening in Santa Monica back in the fall. What she Mm -hmm. told me was that, you know, cities complain about having local control taken away from them by the state on housing issues all the time. But she said this was an example of the state, you know, having a punishment for cities that did not use their local control. So remember, this only applies in cities that do not pass state compliant housing plans. And she says cities have had ample time to show that they were serious about housing goals. And it only applies in areas where those plans were not approved. So builders and the internet are not the only people talking about this. Right. (laughs) So you mentioned a whole bunch of projects. Have any of them actually gotten built yet? Well, nope. And in fact, while there are some projects that are sort of moving through the processes, as it were, we could still be a couple years away, frankly, from anyone sticking a shovel in the ground, given how long it takes for projects to get through cities, permitting no matter what, also lining up financing on the development side and the like. 
those sorts of things. So how many cities does the builder's remedy apply to right now? How many non-compliance do we have? Right. So remember that it only applies in places that are out of compliance with state housing law. So in Southern California, and I'm going to include San Diego for this count, the builder's remedy likely applies in 118 cities, including some of your favorite cities, Manuela. Mm. Cities like Coronado, Del Mar, Beverly Hills, Laguna Beach, Malibu, South Pasadena, and West Hollywood. I wish listeners could see your hands here because <laughs> you're guiding me through um, your favorite cities. All yes. my favorite cities. Yes. Although mm-hmm. Atherton is up there. <laughs> um, these are a lot of cities, though, where builders have, you know, supposedly all these powers. But you mentioned only projects proposed in a few cities and wealthy ones at that. Why is that? Yeah. So it's not just the legal uncertainty that makes this proposition a bit of a risky bet. But also city councils probably aren't going to like you as a developer if you try to ram through a project outside of their zoning rules. And typically developers need city councils to play ball with their projects because there are many ways that elected officials can hamstring current or future efforts. So blowing things up like this maybe isn't really the best PR strategy, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But these places that we've been talking about tend to be more hostile to housing development. And alongside these newer, stronger laws, developers may be more willing to buck the council and rely perhaps on their rights or these laws instead of their relationships with the elected officials. Right. It's more of a statement here. Yeah. And one more thing too here. Well, there is that set aside for low or moderate income housing. 20% for low income can be high for a market rate developer to decide to do it. So these are most likely to occur in areas that may demand high enough rents to finance the required low income housing. Yeah. So there's quite a confluence of factors here. Exactly. Yeah. So what should we be looking at for the Bay Area? So I think probably a lot of the same, you know, in particular, YIMBY advocates who tend to be concentrated in the Bay Area are making a lot of hay out of this. They're calling Mm -hmm. it like a zoning holiday. So perhaps there could be more pickup there, uh, seeing as it's more known and some experience with what's happened so far around in L.A. But also there's no more sort of element of surprise, as it were, from developers like there was in Southern California. So cities who don't want this to happen may be better prepared to try to block it. Of course. So where will this apply in the Bay Area? So according to the state housing departments, count just two Bay Area cities, San Francisco and Alameda, got their housing plan state certified by that January 31st deadline. So that leaves 107 cities still awaiting the state to sign off, including some more of your favorite cities, Manuela. Name them, Liam. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, you should know. But of course, I'm talking about Cupertino, Healdsburg, Menlo Park, Napa, Palo Alto, and as you already mentioned, Atherton. All my faves. Okay. So that's why we're seeing this threat in 23 Oakwood. Exactly. We want it to be black and white, but it's still pretty legally uncertain. And because some of the vagaries in the law, the builder's remedy might not be automatic in certain Bay Area cities until more time passes and the state decides on whether cities that pass plans before the deadline meet muster. That makes sense. I mean, these must be out of compliance for different reasons and some more extreme than others. Right. So do you want my kind of overall take here? Of course, I always do. Mm, Okay, here we go. So unless and until we see an actually successful Builder's Remedy project get out of the ground, I think things here are still pretty speculative. Let's see if Chris Elmendorf agrees. We are here with Chris Elmendorf. He's a professor at the UC Davis School of Law, and he's written a lot about the Builder's Remedy. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. 
It's great to be here. Thank you. So we don't need you to define the builder's remedy because we did that earlier in the show, but I am curious how you came across it in your research and why you decided to spend some time looking at it. So the builder's remedy is not a new concept. It's not a new concept in California and it's not a new concept outside of California. It was created by the New Jersey Supreme Court in the early 1980s. New Jersey courts in the 1970s were very progressive and very adventuresome, and they created something like California's fair share housing framework as a matter of state constitutional law in New Jersey. And then cities were like, what the heck? You know, we don't want low-income housing here. And Uh the court was struggling to find some way to get cities to comply. And finally, it said, if a city's not allowing low-income housing, a developer can just go to court And the court will issue the building permit if it's a good, affordable housing project, regardless of the city's zoning. And then that scared cities and ultimately the New Jersey legislature into adopting a planning framework that kind of looks like California's in some ways. And the legislature said, "Okay, if you've adopted a fair share housing plan that states has is good enough, then you're not subject to this builder's remedy in court. And by fair share means you have to have some low-income housing, right? Or some- Yeah, super complicated, like in California, setting the housing targets and whatnot. California, going back to the late 1960s, first establishes its planning framework, and then in 1980, tries to make it a more regular process. But there wasn't a remedy in California for cities that were out of compliance. So in 1990, the- legislature amends California's Housing Accountability Act, borrowing concepts from New Jersey to create a builder's remedy. Then that provision is on the law for decades and never used, at least so far as I could tell, had never been used. So I started asking on Twitter a couple of years ago about like, why hasn't anybody ever tried this? Well, that's the place where you find all the answers, I'm sure for your legal research, right? Yeah. Yeah. The response from developers and housing advocates was, What is this? Yeah. Like not only had nobody not tried it or very few people had tried it, but nobody even remembered that existed. So then I had a student who went down to the legislative archives to try to figure out like what were people actually thinking in 1990 when they adopted this law? And in the legislative archives, she found an example from 1991 of a builder's remedy project that so far as I know is the first builder's remedy project and the only builder's remedy project that was proposed in California prior to the Santa Monica flurry recently. Hmm. And it was an Albany homeowner. Albany is a small suburb outside of Berkeley who wanted to legalize an existing accessory dwelling unit. And the city said, well, if you're going to do that, you need to add two off-street parking spots. This homeowner said, I've got no place to put two off-street parking spots but you don't have a housing element. So you can't apply your parking requirement to my application to legalize an accessory dwelling unit. And the city said, well, if you don't provide two off-street parking spaces, that's going to violate our health and safety laws. So (laughs) we're going to deny your project because health and safety is an allowable grounds for denial under the Housing Accountability Act. The homeowner evidently didn't have the resources or interest to litigate and the project died. And that was that until... uh, you know, 2022. And they weren't even trying to build anything new, just legalize what existed. They were trying to legalize an existing ADU. Why hasn't anyone used it once it became a little bit more known? All we have is conjectures at this point. But one plausible conjecture is it's just incredibly poorly drafted. Mm. And to be more specific, the law says if a city doesn't have a compliant housing element, it can't apply its zoning or its general plan to deny an affordable project, 
which is defined as one which has 20% low income units or 100% moderate income. But then it goes on and says, nothing in this law shall be construed to prevent a city from applying its development standards to a project, so long as those development standards are consistent with meeting its share of regional housing need. So like, what the heck is a development standard as opposed to a zoning standard? A zoning rule. I don't know. (laughs) They're not defined anywhere in the law. And as best I can tell, that savings clause for development standards probably was never intended to apply in cities that don't have an approved housing element. But who knows? The writing of the law is totally unclear. And then I think there was another concern, which is that a developer might propose a project while the city's out of compliance with the housing element law. But then the city would use CEQA to delay, oh, an acronym, California Environmental Quality Act, to delay the project for a very long time. At some point during that delay period, the city would finally get in compliance with the housing element law. And it would say, oh, now that we're in compliance, we can deny your project. Oh, so that's not clear either. When would it apply? Because if you applied during, now it's back in compliance and maybe it doesn't apply anymore. So a couple of years ago, the legislature passed a bill called the Housing Crisis Act, which establishes a new procedure where a developer can file what's called a preliminary application. And then the filing of that preliminary application is supposed to lock in place the zoning and development standards that apply to the project. And a lawyer from Santa Monica sent a letter to HCD's new housing accountability unit said, does this law, this Housing Crisis Act of 2019, mean that if I file a builder's remedy application while Santa Monica is out of compliance with the housing element law, then the city has to process my application based on the rules in place, that is, no zoning, no general plan land use restrictions, even if the city later gets into compliance with the housing element law. And HCD said, yes. And I think that's what gave the developer in Santa Monica the confidence to go forward with those first builder's remedy projects. Sounds like you just sort of answered what my next question was going to be, like, why popular now? And it sounds like what you're saying is, well, while perhaps poorly drafted and perhaps still poorly drafted and unclear as before it sort of winds through the courts, there's been more certainty put in. And now that's given some people some willingness to kind of test the limits and test boundaries here. Yeah. I mean, I think ironically, it's certainty which has resulted from other housing laws, right? Not the original builder's remedy law that is giving developers now a little more confidence, right? So the Housing Crisis Act, which set this principle about no retroactivity once you file the preliminary application, that was a big step. I think more generally, we have a spate of other laws like, again, I'm going to try to avoid acronyms, but one that passed last year that allows for by right development of multifamily housing in commercial areas. Another law passed in 2017 that allows by right development of projects that meet certain affordability and labor standards if cities aren't making adequate progress towards their housing plans. The creation of these new laws that allow some kinds of projects, some kinds of multifamily housing projects to be developed by right, which means no discretionary review by the cities, no CEQA, that is in turn engendering a new business model among the development community where some developers still specialize in the old ways of being buddies with the city council, whether that's like being an above board buddy or whether that's a moving money under the table buddy. 
that was still like the classic model of how you were successful as a developer, right? You ingratiated yourself with the city councils where you did business. But now there's beginning to be this new model of, I do projects that cities can't deny because state law has made it clear that cities can't deny the project. And not only can cities cannot deny the project, they can't delay the project through CEQA or they can't impose weird or strange conditions that raise the cost of the project. And so once you have some people who are working in this buy right development space or people who see a future in the buy right development space, they also become more willing to test the boundaries even when the project is not a buy right project. And these builder's remedy projects, cities are limited from disapproving the project Cities aren't really constrained in terms of their ability to delay the project or to impose alterations in the design of the project and to do other things that could make life sort of generally unpleasant for the project proponent. How popular is this actually, though, this move toward a different model? You know, Santa Monica is one example where, you know, they actually went through with that. But are we actually going to see many Bay Area cities try and use this different tact? I really don't know. I think there's a YIMBY group that is trying to track builders' remedy projects. This is YIMBY Law, and they have a website that's tracking projects. And I think they have something like 15 different cities on their website now where builders' remedy applications have been filed. I don't know if all of those are serious projects, and certainly I don't know anything about whether they're approvable projects. But that's some indication that we're not just talking about Santa Monica any longer. The other thing that's I thought was kind of clever, very clever, actually, was that this uh, Yimby Law Group recruited architects to submit model builder's remedy project plans that could be developed in single-family neighborhoods. So you've got a 5,000-square-foot lot with a single-family home on it. Show us how you can create a five-unit building with one unit as deed-restricted low-income affordable housing and put it in any single-family neighborhood in the state. And they got a lot of submissions. Architects got really excited about this. this and they're up like on the website show. now. I could, <laughs> I could <laughs> watch really this. Like a game show. So now the question is like, what homeowners are going to want to come forward and say, hey, you know, I'm done with ADUs. I want a fiveplex now. I want to go back to like, go through a few things that you said and pull on some more threads. You know, you've mentioned CEQA as being a potential thing that even though this, you know, in theory, the city council can't say no to these projects, there are other laws that might allow them to be blocked. Is the law itself still porous enough? You know, what kind of holes legal or otherwise do you think still exist that make it less certain that this sort of process could actually be followed through with? So CEQA is one big question. A second big question is what this provision of law that says you can apply development standards means. And then a third question is, is the city really out of compliance with the housing element law? That sounds like a simple thing, but I guess it's not. It sounds like a simple thing, right. But if the city didn't adopt a housing element at all, that's easy. It's clearly out of compliance. If you're past the deadline, there's no adopted housing element. The city's in the penalty box. But let's say the city has adopted a housing element and HCD has said your housing element is no good. Yeah. Well, a city could say, we think our housing element is great and HCD was wrong. Mm. And the law doesn't say that the builder's remedy applies if HCD has determined the housing element is not compliant. The law says the builder's remedy applies if the housing element is non-compliant. A city could go to court, defend its denial of the builder's remedy project on the ground that HCD messed up. And in fact, we were in compliance with the housing element law all along. And the legislature has done a lot 
to strengthen the housing element law, as well as other housing laws over the last few years. But one thing it has not done is it has not expressly overruled cases that were decided 15, 20, 25 years ago, in which courts said on this question of what makes a housing element compliant, well, a housing element complies if a city checked all the boxes. No matter whether HCD says it's good enough. Yeah. And in fact, these older cases expressly say the merits of the housing element, like whether it's good or not, whether it's going to achieve its objectives, that's irrelevant to compliance as a matter of law. They're really out of keeping with the current sensibilities of the Newsom administration and the legislature around housing. But courts are usually slow moving, not terribly creative institutions. And if a city walks into court and cites one of these old cases that says, well, look, we checked the boxes. I don't know whether the city ends up prevailing or whether the court says, no, we're in a new world now. And if HCD says your plan is no good and HCD had a reasonable basis for saying your plan is no good we're going to give HCD the benefit of the doubt. So you mentioned also the sort of change in the model of interacting with a city council. This is sort of an ultimate FU to the city. Like, how can they really get away with it, given all that you've just discussed about the uncertainty? Well, I'm not the person you should be asking that question to. I, you, <laughs> you should really be talking to the developers or the developers' lawyers who are proposing these projects. I do think it's interesting, though, that in Santa Monica, the developer who's behind most of the Builders Remedy projects is a major institutional player. I think the Lennar Corporation is behind one of the other Builders Remedy projects in another city, another major player. So it's not like these are kind of fly-by-night operatives or entities that are just doing things to make a splash. I mean, I was actually wondering if, and kind of thought for a while that maybe there weren't going to be any Builders Remedy projects unless some, you know, rich person decided to do it as like a vanity charity project. You know, I'm just going to spend a bunch of money optioning sites and then go around and, and try to, to get these projects entitled with the goal of putting pressure on cities. But it actually seems like the people behind these projects are sort of ordinary developers in the building housing to make money business. And the fact that they think it's worth trying suggests they see some viability to it is kind of they, they see some saying. viability right. to it yeah and that's a nice segue to this my next question which is you know when, when you and I have talked about this in, in previous conversations you expect this process to be most prevalent in wealthier cities that have a history of not having a lot of housing growth or blocking housing you know why do you think that is well for a project to qualify for the builders remedy 20% of the units have to be reserved for lower income households or 100% of the units have to be restricted for moderate income households. And that means that on the other units in the project, the developer either has to be making a lot of money or else getting a subsidy because they're going to be losing money on the 20% that are de-restricted affordable units. I talked to one developer about Davis. Why don't you propose one of these projects in Davis, which is where I teach. And for the listeners who don't know, Davis is basically the Palo Alto of the Central Valley. Right? <laughs> a good university here. And super NIMBY residents who don't want the students to vote in city elections and don't want to provide housing for the students while they, you know, commute into their well-paid jobs in the sort of elite world of Sacramento. So apologies to anybody I just offended with that characterization, <laughs> but I think it's about right. So at any rate, it's also expensive. Like it's the most expensive housing market in the Central Valley. But this developer said 20% low-income project can't make money on it in Davis. So if you can't make money on a 20% low-income project in Davis, 
really talking about the wealthiest communities in the Bay Area, Los Angeles, San Diego, where there's a, a money-making possibility. So maybe some nonprofit developer will do this kind of project in Davis or in other locations. That's possible. But those nonprofit developers, they may also be dependent on city money in some ways. You know, it's not clear whether they're going to be willing to rock the boat. So what needs to happen for the builder's remedy to be a real thing instead of a theoretical thing? I think we'll find out. I think what Santa Monica does will be important. Even if it doesn't end up in court, if Santa Monica just decides it's, we don't, it's not worth fighting this, we're going to approve the projects, then that will set not a legal practice, but a convention that other cities will then maybe look to. I'm sure that some cities will decide to fight it in court and eventually fighting it in court will lead to judicial precedents that clarify some of the open questions of law. Some cities or their residents too, right? Or resident neighboring residents to whatever project there is. Right. So even if Santa Monica approves the projects, it may be that neighbors who don't like them will challenge them in court. It's also possible that if there are a lot more of these projects proposed, particularly in places where there's a lot of opposition to new housing, or if the projects seem wildly out of scale with existing neighborhoods, that there'll be pressure on the legislature to clarify some of these ambiguities. I think while nobody was using the law, nobody worried much about the ambiguities. And now that people are using the law, I can imagine pressure on the legislature, either from the development community or from the League of City type representatives to do something to clarify it. So do you think with all these uncertainties that developers may be using kind of builders remedies as like a threat, kind of a way to force cities to give them what they want rather than potentially going through an actual project? I mean, we just get a preview for you. You haven't listened to it yet, but our avocado this fortnight was Steph Curry in Atherton, as you might expect. But we talked about how that meeting in Atherton, apparently there was this looming threat of the developer of the property that he was so excited about, Curry was so excited about using the builder's remedy and that kind of scared people into thinking about, well, we have to do something here. I mean, do you think like that is potentially more of a potential impact of the remedy itself than, you know, someone, I'm doing it, getting their plan approved, and then they stick the shovel into the ground? I think it's a mistake to look at any housing law and measure its success by how many projects get approved pursuant to that mechanism. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. there could be five builder's remedy projects in the state and still the builder's remedy is doing a massive amount for housing production. If it motivates cities to adopt good housing elements and then to follow through and do the rezoning that they promised in their housing element. And if you go back and look at the legislative history of the 1990 bill that created this remedy, that's how people thought it was gonna work. They thought this was going to be the tool we need to get cities into compliance with that housing element law. And in fact, prior to 1990, like many cities just didn't even bother to adopt a housing element, let alone submit one to HCD. And after 1990, you start to see at least going through the motions of adopting a housing element. So it could very well work for housing through that mechanism, even if it doesn't result in new builder's remedy projects being approved. The other way it could work is a developer might propose a builder's remedy project and then agree to withdraw it in return for the city approving something else. And we're already seeing something like that with SB 35, which is the law that allows choir cities to ministerially approve zoning compliant projects that meet certain affordability and labor standards if the city is not making adequate progress towards its housing targets, where a developer says, look, You can approve this project 
through your discretionary process, which I've already proposed, or if you deny it, I'm going to resubmit a SB 35 application. And that's a good incentive for cities to prove the discretionary project. Chris, uh, any other remedies you want to give our listeners? No, I think this is good for now. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to us. This is important so that in the search bar, when people type in housing, they will find Gimme Shelter. We get our engineering and editing support from Victor Figueroa. Victor, thank you as always for your great work. My name is Liam. I work at the LA Times and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. This is all part of a strategy so that the chatbot will choose us as the best housing <laughs> podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Tobias M. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>